The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Mary Magdalene stayed outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and then reported what he had told her. The Gospel of the Lord. As we move through the season of Easter, in a way that is different than our movement through the season of Lent, our scriptures are put together in a very particular way. The first reading at daily Mass through the Easter season is taken from the book of the Acts of the Apostles sequentially. And so it's not chosen to correspond to the gospel reading as we saw during Lent. Rather, what we are going to do is we will read the history of the church as it begins to grow in the world following the great events after the resurrection of the Lord. It's not a bad idea then to take some time over the first couple weeks of Lent and just read through the text of the Acts of the Apostles to get a feel for the overall story so that as we engage it in installments on the weekdays, you have a sense of context. And it's remarkable in that on the one hand, the Easter season ends on Pentecost Sunday, but our readings, our first readings through the Easter season deal with what happened after Pentecost Sunday. And in a sense, what they do is they also give us a preview of what it is that we ourselves should be preparing for as we move toward that great celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our gospel readings in particular for this week, however, are all about Easter Sunday. 
because here in the octave of Easter, the eight days of Easter Sunday, we celebrate them all as one day. And that is why we continue to chant before the gospel, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad, let us rejoice in it. This day, this Easter day. So again, in the liturgy of the church, today is still Easter Sunday. And the, scripture, the scriptural witness in the Gospels to Easter Sunday is abundant and complex. And so over these eight days, we read the full witness to Easter Sunday. The Easter octave concludes with this Sunday that is approaching. And again, let me stress this, which is first and foremost the octave day of Easter. And only on a secondary level is Divine Mercy Sunday. And that's not to say Divine Mercy is not important. It is simply to say first things first. And the gospel reading for that day is deliberately chosen to be the gospel that speaks about what happened at night, at the end of the day, on Easter Sunday. So it's kind of cool how it all goes together. The Gospels of Easter Sunday itself, the day itself, deal with Easter morning. And now we are moving this week sequentially through the events of the day until we conclude our engagement this coming Sunday with the consideration of what happens on Easter night. And so, eight days treated as one because to understand it and to truly rejoice in it, we need to take time. So we come now then to this particular gospel reading, one of the most beautiful in all of scripture, the great nole me tangere gospel, the do not touch me, the, as we heard, do not hold on to me. A better translation is probably do not cling to me that Jesus says to Mary Magdalene. And it is a remarkably beautiful and instructive passage that we have placed before us. This example of Mary of Magdala and her tears. She weeps, she weeps, and in her weeping she refuses to leave the tomb. Curiously, when we saw her on Easter Sunday morning, earlier in the day, she discovered the tomb and ran in a hurry to inform the disciples and clearly ran or came back to the tomb with them. But after they've moved on, she remains. And we did not hear that she arrived weeping, and we did not hear that she ran weeping to the apostles. But somehow all of this has affected her to the point that now she is weeping. And like so many have throughout history, she stands by a grave and she weeps. In her sadness, she does not want to move. That space where last she saw the Lord is where she would be. Uh, her weeping keeps her there. But we don't know 
why she weeps. And perhaps she doesn't directly know herself as the tears are flowing. Until this remarkable moment where she peers into the tomb and sees not one, but two angels being present. And again, we have something absolutely surprising. Typically in scripture, when one sees an angel, one is overwhelmed. One is stunned. One sees the heavenly messenger in his glorious goodness. And there's a sense of being blessed in an overwhelming way. There is a sense of being frightened at the nearness of heaven to us. And we notice that Mary is not overwhelmed by the angels. And this is surprising. This is surprising. Imagine if you got to see an angel just once and what your reaction would be. If a heavenly messenger in all truth was present and apparent in the world for you. Imagine what your reaction would be. That combination of excitement and fear, that joy, that sense of being special, perhaps. And we simply hear that she saw the angels. And she doesn't seem to react to them till they speak and they say, woman, why are you weeping? And here we see something absolutely beautiful. She looks at them. And now she names the reason for her tears. They have taken him away, and I don't know where he is. Angels aren't enough for Mary. Angels aren't enough because she doesn't love angels like she loves Christ. Her desire is for Jesus, not for an angel. Her desire is for Jesus, not some lesser consolation, however heavenly it might be. Her desire is for Jesus and no one else, and that is why she is there. She stays at the tomb because she doesn't know where to go because she doesn't know where he is. How beautiful. If she knew where he would be, she would know where to go. But because she doesn't know where he is, she goes nowhere. Because nowhere matters, only where he is. Note how curiously powerful these tears are. And that moment of clarity, what is it that produces those tears that stream from your eyes? 
The eyes long to see Jesus, and they do not, and so they weep. The eyes long to know where he is, and they do not, and so they weep. This is not, curiously enough, merely sadness over the passion. It is not simply sadness that he is dead. It is something deeper, something much more complex. It's sadness of also not having that consolation of having a physical place where I can simply be with him. And we see here, though, that even that lesser consolation of simply being with the body of Christ is for her a greater thing than being visited by angels. How many of us could say that? How many of us could say that? And so it is then that she turns away from the angels because the angels aren't the answer. And to turn away from the angels, she has to look outside the tomb. And it's when she turns her eyes away from the inside of the tomb that finally she sees Jesus, although she doesn't know him. And how curious that is, the desire of her heart. Her eyes have been shedding tears because they long to look upon him, and suddenly they see him and do not know him. This too is deep and profound. This seeing but not knowing. This seeing but not recognizing. This great desire of her heart that she does not know as well as she thought. This mysteriousness of Christ. He is here, but he is somehow unfamiliar, somehow unknowable in this moment. But he is very much there. But it is not until she stops looking into the tomb that she sees him. Sometimes in our grief, in our woundedness, in our loss, we never stop looking into the tomb. And so we never see the life that is standing right next to us. And so she turns, and she sees Christ, and she thinks he's the gardener. What a marvelous, what a marvelous image that is. In fact, uh, in the Basilica of Notre Dame in Paris, which is presently being repaired after the fire, there's a remarkable series of images of the life of Christ, and one of the images is this moment of Mary meeting Jesus in the garden, the nole me tangere moment. And it shows Jesus, and he has a reddish robe on that is adorned with floral imagery because he's the gardener. And he's holding a shovel. And, you know, it's not often you see an image of the Lord of all creation holding a shovel. Um, but just to emphasize, she thinks he is the one who cares for the garden. And so at this point, we have that marvelous irony 
in her question. Sir, if you're the one who took him away, and in fact, he is. If you're the one who took Jesus out of the tomb, please tell me where you put him so that I may go and take him. What an interesting series of questions. And what an interesting request. In fact, he is the one who took Jesus from the tomb because he is Jesus. And Christ took himself out of the tomb. And he knows well where he put him because he's put himself right there in front of Mary Magdalene. And we see now that she, as much as she loves him, has not yet reached that point of knowing what his victory means or that there's a victory here at all. This is the moment where Jesus calls her out of the tomb of worldly grief. This is the moment where Jesus calls her out of the tomb of doubt into the newly created world of faith. This is the moment where Jesus speaks the word of life into a heart that as much as it loves, is caught up in the sadness of death. And he does so by speaking her name, Mary. And suddenly, hearing his voice and the way he says her name. And again, check your translation of this passage in St. John's Gospel, because there's an exclamation point after the Mary. It's not a whisper, it's a shout, it's an emphatic. It's not a subtle naming of her, but one that is loud and powerful. One that in a sense shakes the ear and shakes the heart. It's authoritative. And when he speaks in that way, she is claimed and she is known and now she knows herself and she knows who it is that is speaking to her. But we see as well, the glimpse of the Lord is not enough without the voice of the Lord that speaks into her heart to call her. And in recognizing she falls to her knees before him to honor him, and she reaches out to him. And here we have this mysterious moment where the Lord says, Noli me tangere, do not touch me, do not hold on to me, do not cling to me. But isn't that what we grow up hearing we need to do? Hold on to Jesus, cling to Jesus, touch Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And here he says, no, don't do that. This too is remarkable. Later we will see that Jesus does let people touch him on Easter Sunday. And so the issue is not a matter merely of does Jesus want to be touched or not. Rather, it is there's a moment 
there's a moment when the touching and the clinging and the holding will be correct. And this is not that moment. Because right now he is not going to abide in this moment with Mary. I have not yet ascended, but I am going to. After I have ascended, clinging, touching will happen in its own way, in its own time. Because right now is not the time for you to cling to me here. This is the beautiful thing. As much as she wants to hold on to Jesus, man, Jesus is tough. She's been crying her eyes out for how many hours? She's been aching in her heart, and finally, here he is, and he says her name, and she knows him, and he says, okay, that's enough. And why is it enough? Because she can't remain here because she now has some place to go. She can't follow right now where he's about to go. But she has some place she needs to go. And it's at this moment where she becomes, as the church for centuries has proclaimed, the apostle to the apostles. The one who is sent, not to the world, but to the apostles to carry the joyful news. She who remained weeping, she whose eyes are opened by the voice of the Lord, is now sent by that same voice of the Lord to go to the others and to announce to them that they might be ready for what happens later in the day. Jesus will appear to his apostles later in the day, but the word that he will be coming to them arrives through Mary. Note how beautiful that is and how here we see that first clear note that the risen Christ, when he meets us, also sends us. And he sends us to bear the news of what we have seen and what we have heard. And beautifully, beautifully out of all of that, and especially through the ministry of those same apostles to whom Mary is sent, a powerfully and wonderfully intimate touching and clinging to Jesus will be given to the world, will be given to us. And we're going to do it here in just a couple minutes. Because Jesus is going to come down off of this altar, and he's going to be here. And we're going to come forward, and we're going to look at him, and we're not going to be thinking, maybe it's the gardener. We're going to come forward. And no, we're going to stretch out our hands and he's not going to say, noli me tangere. He's not going to say, do not touch me. He's not going to say, do not cling to me. In fact, he's going to say, take and eat. Take and receive. Behold, I abide with you. Behold, here I am with you. Touching in a certain way is what completes knowing. We can look at one another, we can listen to one another, but there is something about physical contact, about touching, that completes how we know one another. And note what he does. He who says, I have not yet ascended, do not cling to me. 
now comes in a way where we can receive, and we can touch, and we can cling. He who reigns in heaven is pleased to abide and dwell with us here. And the very essence of this great sacrament is that it is both Calvary and Easter Sunday continued and made present for us as often as we celebrate it. It is not just the victory of the cross, but precisely because it is the victory of the cross, it is the presence of the risen one, the victorious one, the peaceful one, the merciful one, the one who outside of a tomb in a garden sent a woman forward with a word of life. And note how wonderfully that completes what we hear at the very beginning of Scripture. We're in a garden. A woman shared the word and invitation of Satan with her husband and fell into a tomb. And here it is, the Lord, in another garden, sends another woman, not with a word of death, but a word of life for the church and for the world. How gloriously wonderful that is. And we see indeed he is in fact the gardener. Mary was not wrong. He is the one who planted and tended the original garden of paradise. And in this garden of the resurrection, from this garden, he sends one forth to announce the glad and fruitful tidings that life and love and mercy are victorious even over the might of the grave. Amen.